G'day, I'm Rowan Mackey, and I'm joined by my dad, clinical psychologist Chris Mackey, and this is Psych Spiels and Silver Linings. All right, well, today I am, in fact, not joined by dad as I usually am, but we have a very special guest on the podcast today. Bianca Tassoni is here with us, and we'll be talking about a range of topics, including neurodiversity and neurodivergence. So we've called today's episode Navigating Neurodivergence. And first of all, Bianca, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Rowan. Thanks for having me. I think it's such an important topic to talk about. So very excited to share my insights. And I guess a lot of my insights are probably coming from my clinical experience working with neurodivergent clients and hopefully capturing a lot of their experience in terms of, I guess, the broader community, understanding what neurodivergence is under that sort of umbrella of neurodiversity, which we'll go into a little bit more detail explaining those terms later. Well, absolutely. And it is a fascinating topic. I know one that you have been very interested in. Just by way of introduction now, you work here at the practice with us. So uh, (laughs) we have known each other for a little while and, and we've had some really interesting conversations on this topic off air. And it's a a very interesting area and one that I think we're learning a lot more about in psychology as well. So Mm -hmm. I suppose just to start, I'll I'll ask the same question in a couple of different ways. First of all, Mm -hmm. why is this an important topic to be discussing? And I suppose the other aspect of that is I know it has been a real interest of yours, particularly in in recent times. And why has it been so interesting for you? I suppose there may be a similar question in some ways. Yeah, absolutely. This is a really important topic to talk about for a number of different reasons. And I think part of it is coming to recognise more how the world is set up for neurotypical people. So non-neurodivergent folk. And we're learning more how to accommodate people with neurodivergence. But I think we're also coming to recognise some of the gender differences in the, the way neurodivergence can be presented amongst females versus males and I think that's really important because a lot of the research initially was done on males a lot of the diagnostic measures were modeled off males and unfortunately the average age of diagnosis for females is around 30 40 years of age and menopausal years when hormones can impact sort of the exacerbation of unrecognized neurodivergence so I also think, and this is one thing that I'm seeing a lot of on social media, there's a lot more sort of reference to neurodivergence on TikTok, on Instagram, and there are some wonderful platforms that explain what it is. But I can also appreciate that there might be an element of lack of understanding of what it is in full. And my experience has been some people think neurodivergence is only autism and ADHD, but in fact, it goes much beyond that. It sort of can include presentations such as borderline personality disorder, dyslexia, dysgraphia, OCD, Tourette's, just to name a few. So it's not just ADHD and autism. And neurodivergence is an umbrella term to describe many different types of differences in the way the brain operates. And I think differences is the key word here. And the the main word I want to emphasize in this podcast compared to deficits, which is an inaccurate representation of the neurodivergent population. And why, why have I taken an interest in this? Well, I guess a, a part of me almost 
Well, there's probably a few reasons, but in my clinical experience, I have seen the differences in the gender differences in presentation of ADHD and autism. And I've also seen the impact of when that's not recognized. And I'd really like to hopefully educate as best as I can the wider community on sort of understanding what ADHD and autism in particular can look like whilst debunking those stereotypical, I guess, representations of how they might look, which are often inaccurate and often lead to the misdiagnosis in females. And, you know, I also think it's about embracing everyone. That's what neurodiversity is. It's embracing everyone's minds and brains because we're all unique and neurodivergence is just a subtype underneath that neurodiversity of people whose brains or minds sort of, yeah, operate in a very different way. So they engage, think and feel maybe differently to a neurotypical person who um, is someone whose mind and brain perhaps maybe a little bit more typical. But once again, it's not there's, there's nothing wrong with that. Um, it's just, yeah, that their, their mind might operate in a different way. And the other important thing is it's not a mental illness. It's a neurodevelopmental thing, meaning that, yeah, it's, it's a part of people's sort of makeup. It's not necessarily an add-on. And I know later on in the podcast, Rowan, we'll talk a little bit about identity first and person first language. So I think I've given you a really long winded response and I hope that made sense. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I think it, it covers a fair bit of it, but it is a bit of a byproduct in some ways of maybe a little bit more understanding, as you say, like see things about say neurodivergence on like TikTok and that sort of thing. And mm. I think there's maybe a little bit of self-diagnosis going on in some situations. And I know actually that even the assessment waiting time to get an ADHD assessment and things like that at the moment is blown right out and is quite a wait. So it suggests that there's many people who maybe have some questions about whether they themselves relate to this. And I even know for a fact, and I can think of a few examples, just for example, say people I know socially who may have Mm. had a diagnosis even into adulthood, particularly females, I think, as we'll discuss. And and for them, it's been just huge to maybe learn a little bit more about why they've been a certain way in some situations <laughs> and, and again, that that's you yeah. know, no deficit in a way. So we'll get into all that across the podcast and just to give a bit of a sense of what we will talk about on the podcast, we'll go through maybe some of the terms that Bianca described mm. there in terms of neurodiversity, neurodivergence, what they mean. We'll have a bit of a chat about how to be more respectful in our language maybe to people who do have elements of neurodiversity. We'll talk about the the medical model versus the social model. And that's really where some of the change in our understanding has come in in recent times in relation to neurodivergence. We'll speak about what neurotypical people can do to make it a little bit easier for people with neurodivergence and, and really for everyone, really. And, and there may be some of the misconceptions at the end about neurodivergence too. So... Just to start, Bianca, you mentioned some of the examples there. Mm. So I've got, for example, ADHD and autism are ones that you do often hear about. But as you mentioned a little bit there, it's not as if those are the only examples that we come across. And so maybe just to start, if we look at the term neurodivergence or Mm. neurodivergent, 
What does that actually mean? Yeah, great question. So neurodivergent is an umbrella term for individuals who have a mind or brain that perhaps is different from what is typical. So it can be acquired or genetic. And neurodivergence just means having a mind that functions differently to what is considered, as I said, sort of the typical way of learning, processing, interpreting, feeling and behaving. So neurodivergent being sort of an umbrella term to describe ADHD, autism, bipolar, borderline personality disorder, dyslexia, dyspraxia, dyscalculia, OCD and they're just some of the few so really coming to understand that those individuals yeah just sort of display differences in the in the way that their brain and mind works and and that's okay so yeah and then I guess neurotypical is or refers to having a mind or functioning that falls within that sort of societal standard or or what we deem as sort of typical quote quotation marks or common and is sort of the opposite of neurodivergent so you know a non-ADHD or a non-autistic person for example would be classified as neurotypical provided that they of course don't meet any other forms of neurodivergence so you know in session a lot of my neurodivergent clients who might be autistic or ADHDers will often refer to others who are not neurodivergent as neurotypical people. And these two ways that the brain engages in the world all fall under this concept of neurodiversity. So this just refers to the full spectrum of how our minds are all just very different, um, just as we would think of gender, ethnicity, and perhaps sexuality. So neurodiversity acknowledges the full spectrum of individuals. So it's inclusive of neurodivergent and neurotypical individuals. So I guess when working with neurodivergent folk, it's really important that you get the language right and ask you know, if you are a clinician, of course, um, ask them how they preferred to um, be identified. But even if you're not a clinician, I think just checking in with them about their preferred ways of being identified. And I have some clients that you refer to themselves as like, I'm an ADHDR, I'm autistic, as opposed to I have autism or I have ADHD they really sort of connect with that neurodivergence from an identity sort of standpoint. It's not necessarily an add-on. This is a part of who I am and the way my brain operates. And yeah, and that's totally cool. And that's so interesting because I want to ask a little bit more about that in just a moment because, well, that's maybe a little bit different to what we see with maybe some other things. Like, for example, people with a disability at the moment are I believe, prefer to be referred to as, say, for example, a person with a disability than a disabled person. So I'm keen to get into the difference in in just a moment. But just before we go on, looking at, for example, neurodivergence and neurotypical. And so a little bit of a metaphor that I almost think of this as is almost a little bit like, say, operating systems on a computer or, say, iPhone phones versus Android phones. In terms of they both achieve the same things. They Mm. might just do it a little bit differently. They might just look a little bit different. So... It's not to say that one is, say, lesser than the other. It's just that it's a a different operating system, for example, or or maybe a different interface 
in some ways. Is, is that basically how you understand it? Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a great metaphor, you know, and I'd probably add that the iPhones are probably more in line with the neurotypical people um, just because they likely make make up the majority and the androids probably represent the neurodivergent community but they ultimately do the same thing their hardware system just might look a little bit different and we would never I guess impose a an apple hardware system on an android phone or vice versa and I think that's the message I really want to get across today is sort of embracing differences as opposed to imposing I guess neurotypical or more more commonly represented minds on people who whose minds and brains just you know I guess engage in the world in a different way not not a less way well that's so true and and let's get into that a little bit now because like you mentioned it before in terms of say this identity first explanation and Mm. like in some ways when we first started talking this I was a little bit confused by that because we do have the example of, of say people with a disability who don't necessarily want to be identified by their disability first so in some ways I, I suppose why is that why is it that people with neurodivergence are happy to be referred to as for example an ADHD or an autistic person Well, I obviously don't want to speak on behalf of the neurodivergent community, but I'm going to, I guess, give you my sort of impression and sort of thinking about some of my discussions with my neurodivergent clients. But I think this really comes from, which I know we'll talk more about later, this sort of medical model versus social model of understanding sort of neurodivergence. And I guess you know, for an ADHD or for an autistic person, you know, it's it's not necessarily a disability. It's a part of, or a deficit thing. It's a part of like almost like their personality and, and makeup. And so, you know, a lot of my neurodivergent clients embrace that and want to embrace that as opposed to, I guess, referring to it as an, an add-on thing. So, you know, identity-first language is like, I'm an ADHD, you know, I'm autistic. Person-first language is like, you know, uh, I have autism spectrum disorder or Sally has autism or person with autism. And I think there's a lot of pathology and sort of like a bit of a deficit focus when we use that language. But you know, I also ask my clients, hey, like, can I refer to you as an ADHD or, or as autistic to get their preference? Because I don't want to assume that, yeah, they prefer to be referred to in one way or the other. So I think really checking in with neurodivergent folk on their preferred use of language. But my experience with my clients has been that they've really um, embraced that as a part of their their wiring as opposed to it being like an add-on. And don't get me wrong, like, you know, I have ADHD clients that, you know, report some of the challenges that can come with their neurodivergence. For example, like, I really want to do that task, but I have this paralysis and I can't get to it. So I'm not overshadowing some of its um, challenges that can come up. But definitely, yeah, I guess uh, some of my clients have preferred that identity first language of like, this is me, this is a part of my makeup. And, you know, it all falls under that banner of neurodiversity. We're all unique. We're all different in so many different ways. And, you know, we have that understanding of difference in, in the form of ethnicity and gender and sexuality. And I guess this is just another like add on to that 
in understanding neurodivergence. Well, I suppose just through a way of illustrating exactly that, and like you said, like I imagine everyone has a, a slightly different preference in some ways, but mm. I suppose just through a way of illustrating, I believe you had some, for example, feedback from clients as to what they've maybe found helpful in terms of language. So I wonder if you could share some of that with us, even just maybe paraphrasing, of course, what they've said, but I believe that, yeah, that they've given you some indication of what they prefer, which is, I think, helpful to, to hear. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I guess some some general feedbacks being, you know, this person first language colludes with that, I guess, medical model and implies that disability or difference is bad and therefore something that needs to be separated. And I guess in that sort of implied separation informs this idea of we need to cure neurodivergent folk or this is something that needs to be, uh, I guess, removed or changed in some way. And I think as well, kind of going back to that idea of it being like an an add-on or like a, a, a disorder per se is really negative in connotation. And a lot of my neurodivergent clients in particular autistic clients would often say it you know makes me feel lesser just because we're different and there's this sense of dehumanization and this sort of vulnerability to mistreatment and we know as well just quickly on that that trauma rates in neurodivergent folk are really quite high due to those differences that neurotypical people pick up on So, yeah, I think definitely when you're meeting uh, neurodivergent individuals, definitely ask them what their preference is for language and be really respectful of those preferences, just as we would with gender pronouns. I think it's really important that we do the same when meeting and interacting with neurodivergent folk. And so it seems to me that there can be this aspect of, like like you say, almost having language separated so if, it, if it's say a person with ADHD it almost it almost separates the idea of mm. having ADHD to like being a person in some ways in terms mm. of it's like you got the idea of a person and then this ADHD thing is an add-on which mm. you may or may not have but obviously the experience of someone with ADHD is well they're a person who has ADHD sort of thing it, it like uh, yeah I, I can see why I suppose that separation can almost lead to them feeling diminished in a way so well let's get into this idea of the medical model because I think it's a it's an interesting point and it's going to help us understand it a little bit more so it is something that we've spoken about on the podcast a little bit before myself and dad but do you want to just give us a, a brief maybe explanation of what is the medical model yeah, absolutely. So it's the most dominant model in West in the Western world and focuses on disability purely in terms of impairments and deficits, dysfunctions, abnormalities and disorder. So like for neurodivergent populations, all are bad Ds, right? It views disability as a problem with the person and management is all around curing or changing. So you know, very outdated when it comes to engaging and interacting with neuro uh, neurodivergent folk. And I guess the opposite of 
well, the the more recent model that we've been working with is this idea of sort of a social model. So it sees the issue of difference or disability as a social construct. So it's not an attribute of the individual. Instead, society creates an environment that is favoring the neurotypical population and you see that in you know how how schools are how workplaces are set up you know with for an autistic person with sensory differences or more proneness to burnout like I guess the workplace and schools really run off this model that's been I guess that's worked really well for neurotypical people but doesn't really embrace the the neurodiversity in individuals and understanding how people you know operate and work differently and have different needs. And so the way that I almost think about this is well, I guess we understand it a little bit more with, for example, physical disabilities where, for example, if someone's in a wheelchair and they've got a, a meeting on the second floor of a building, mm. well, in some ways the medical model says, well, we need to find some kind of inherent, you know, quote unquote cure or way of managing, say, mm. that disability within that person. Whereas the social model just says, well, maybe we can find another way to you know, get them up to the second floor. Like There could be a ramp, there could be a lift. So it seems that the social model is looking a little bit more at, say, the environment and what the environment Mm. can do to accommodate someone with a particular condition in any way. Yeah, absolutely. You know, there's this famous saying by Alexander D. Heyer, I'm probably butchering his name. When a flower doesn't bloom, you fix the environment in which it grows, not the flower. So you don't pull the flower out. You might try and tweak how many, how often you water it or um, the soil. But yeah, really sort of looking at, well, how can we implement some accommodations to uh, create some fairness yeah, like in, in, in our environment. So absolutely, your example, it speaks to this social model. Um, I think we have started to cotton on to this a little bit with, say, you know, a wheelchair is a, a, a bit of a basic example in some ways, I think. But it's not as if, if a building doesn't have a ramp. It's not mm. as if someone says, well, you, you know, that person doesn't deserve to go up there because they're broken and they can't, mm. you know, make it up to that building on themselves. You just go, well, what can we do to, you know, get a ramp or yeah. work out another way? And I think it's something that we might be realising it almost Mm. might be a a current thing in terms of we're not fully there yet but I think when you really think about it and consider it like you do come to realise how much society maybe is set up for the neurotypical person in some ways and we haven't even really you know brushed the surface of (laughs) different ways that we maybe could accommodate people with neurodivergence but it seems to me that what the social model is trying to do is to say well hold on you know you might be a little bit different and the world might be set up a particular way but that doesn't mean that we can't set it up in a way that's going to get the most out of you and you're still going to be able to have strengths and we're, we're still going to be able to get as much from you as a contributing member of society it seems to me that there's maybe a little bit of acknowledgement that it's on all of us it's not just on you know someone to mm. act in a way that's not in accordance with their natural way of being it's actually about all of us to go well hold on what can we do to maybe find a way that's that's going to help you realize your strengths yeah absolutely absolutely and and Speaking a little bit to that, I'm trying not to get too jargonistic, but you know, there's this, uh, there was, there's been a theory um, called the theory of mind that 
I'm just going to preference that it's outdated and a new theory has emerged, but basically postulates that neurodivergent individuals, in particular autistic individuals, uh, struggle with this concept of like empathy and understanding other people's emotions and feelings. Since then, there's this theory called the double empathy theory and that actually suggests that neurotypical people uh, and neurodivergent people both have this ability to sympathize, empathize, put themselves in someone else's shoes and neurodivergent people can do that easier with other neurodivergent folk and neurotypical people can do that easier with other neurotypical folk. It's not that the neurodivergent folk don't have that ability. In fact, a lot of my neurodivergent clients are some of the most sensitive, you know, empaths I've met. So the most important thing is recognizing that, you know, both neurotypical and neurodivergent uh, individuals have this ability to showcase empathy and put themselves in the shoes of others. It's not a singular problem within the neurodivergent community. It just might be a little bit easier to understand people who are like-minded than than others who sort of think differently. But previously with that theory of mind, the focus was on changing the minority, so the neurodivergent clients. But in fact, I think neurotypical people also need to be really considerate of the feelings of neurodivergent individuals when they're communicating with them as well, because yeah, they might display differences in the way that they show empathy or understand it, but we all have the ability to, yeah, sort of display empathy and put ourselves in the shoes of someone else. It just might look a little bit different. Well, that's so true. And like the example that comes to mind is like, for example, that show Love on the Spectrum, I think mm. it's called, that, that's come out in recent years where yeah. they get a couple of autistic people to, for example, go on dates and all this sort of thing. And it's this kind of wonderful, you know, fuzzy feeling show, which shows, for example, how, say, autistic people can connect with each other and obviously, you know, achieve love. Like I wonder with, say, the medical model years ago, we might have thought of it in a way where an autistic person has to behave in the same way as a neurotypical person to, you know, for example, find love and things like this. But it seems that we are coming to realise a little bit more that it's just different ways of doing things. And so it seems to me, like, if we go back to, say, that operating system analogy that we spoke about before, like, say, one's, you know, Mac and one's Windows. Like, they both obviously do the same things. But, you know, you wouldn't necessarily download a Mac program onto a Windows computer in some ways. And so it seems to me that, say, well, Windows operating systems, for lack of a better term, almost have a, an easier way of communicating with each other. Like, they can download the same programs, all this sort of thing. Mac operating systems have maybe an easier time communicating with each other because they can, again, download the same programs, all this sort of thing. And so I wonder if it's it's similar to, say, yeah, neurotypical people and neurodivergent people. It's almost like there, there is this almost like different languages in a way or different yeah. ways of understanding that just makes it a little bit harder to interface yeah. with the opposite way of doing things if that makes sense like it's not to say that anyone does it wrong exactly doesn't do it as well or any of this sort of stuff but at the same time there is just maybe this extra layer of communication that's needed or this extra layer of calibration that's needed 
if there's a slightly different operating system. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And later on in the podcast, we'll talk a little bit about um, love languages. And I think it kind of speaks to that a little bit. You know, we have this understanding or some of us have this understanding of the five common love languages that neurotypical people uh, have preferences for in their relationships. But research has actually told us that neurodivergent love languages are actually quite different. Like you can definitely, I guess, link them up to the neurotypical original love languages but they're displayed in a very different way. So I think just even understanding that, um, I think that's a really cool, fun fact that we'll talk about later on just gives us that insight into, yeah, like neurodivergent people have this ability to like empathize, show love, care, but they just do it in a really different way that's unique to them and there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. And I suppose it speaks to maybe the more enlightened way that we're thinking about this now, whereas in the past... Maybe someone would have just seen that as an inability as opposed to just a, a different way of going about it. But Exactly, yeah. But my next question, Bianca, is what can, for example, neurotypical people do to make things easier for neurodivergent people? Like I suppose part of this is the aspect of, say, the, the social model and looking at different ways that neurotypical people can accommodate people with neurodivergence. But do you have any more ideas in terms of maybe what society in some ways can do to make it easier for people with neurodivergence to access their strengths and Mm. be able to I suppose, yeah, communicate and interface with everyone a bit easier. I think the first and the most important thing is just being aware of any of your own biases around neurodivergence and and, and your understanding. And just, you know, I guess if you have friends, if you have family members that are neurodivergent, really speaking to them about their experiences, their preferences, their strengths to, uh, I guess, get a little bit of a balanced perspective on what neurodivergence means and looks like. And, you know, I think as well in terms of accommodations, you know, I know schools now are really sort of mindful of having sort of sensory spaces, so quiet spaces for autistic or ADHD neurodivergent students to go to if they're feeling sensory if they're feeling overwhelmed sensory wise or socially because we know that masking occurs at such high rates in autistic and ADHDers and masking is just I guess a, a term to describe this sort of mimicking process socially and picking up on social cues and what peers are saying and doing, but also masking for the ADHD can be in the form of overcompensatory behaviors. So really like working tirelessly and hard and, you know, being really perfectionistic or being people pleasers and then obviously just burning out in the process. So yeah, like sensory accommodations, but really speaking to the person, like what helps you, you know, allowing a bit more choice for the, for the person. Like if it's a social catch up and provided that's something that they want to do, give them choice over where and make it predictable. I know a lot of my autistic clients like predictability. They don't really like abrupt changes to their day. So make it predictable, you know, do test runs of things. And I I guess one of the love languages, which we'll speak to a little bit more later, that I often see in my sessions is info dumping. So info dumping is this idea of 
ADHD as an autistic individuals often have special interests. Now for the autistic person, those special interests might be longstanding. For the ADHD, they may change. But giving them that space to like literally dump their <laughs> their knowledge of that area because number one, it shows that they're not masking, which shows that they're comfortable with you. But number two, it's a way that they like to express and communicate. So instead of cutting them off or or feeling like it's out of context, just allowing that kind of space to explore their interests and I guess as well, another important thing is, you know, allowing uh, neurodivergent clients to stim. Now, stimming is like a self-regulatory repetitive behavior. It can be in the form of leg tapping, hair twirling, uh, sort of waving your hand. It could be a vocal repetitive sound. It comes in many forms and giving people that space without judgment to do that because for the autistic person, it helps them regulate. For the ADHD, it provides sensory stimulation when they might be understimulated and it might actually help them focus, even though to a neurotypical person, it might appear to be some sort of distraction. It's actually not the case for an ADHD. So I, I think speaking to the neurodivergent population and asking them what do they need is really important as opposed to making any assumptions because you know you may have met one autistic person but you've just met one autistic person and the same goes for ADHD it's a spectrum and it can look different um, and in particular when we're thinking about those gender differences as well well certainly then it, it strikes me that that aspect of say info dumping it almost gets to the principle of recognizing that things might look a little bit different to the neurotypical person, but also I think recognising where they, they're coming from is important. Like, you know, for example, someone might be coming up and telling you about, you know, trains and mm. you know, as a neurotypical person, you might be thinking, all right, you know, we've heard about trains for a little while, but at the same mm. time, if you look at it from the neurodivergent person's perspective, well, they're, you know, trying to share something with you that, you know, is very close mm. to them, is an Im- important part of their identity in some ways. And so almost taking a step back and realising, yeah, that, that things might just look a little bit different. And like it, it struck me as we were talking about this, you know, both on air and off air, but just the degree to which the world really is set up for neurotypical people. And so I wonder if even it, just recognising well, that in itself and yeah. like I know one thing, we might talk about this a little bit later too when we talk about rejection sensitivity dysphoria, but one aspect of many neurodivergent people's lives is being told, say, you're not doing this correctly mm. or you've got to do something a particular way and basically they're you know, being flooded with kind of corrective statements about, yeah. you know, you should do this, you should do that, you know, that's not the way to behave in this particular situation, which mm. to the neurodivergent person, it might be completely natural, it might involve, you know, some kind of sensory stimulation that just helps them feel better in a particular way. So mm. I wonder if the more that we can learn about it as maybe neurotypical people, Mm. the more that we can hold space for people who are going to be slightly different in some ways. And then it's about recognising, well, 
where do those differences come from? It doesn't mean that they're, you know, deficient in any way. Maybe we just need to learn a little bit more about, you know, what we can do to recognise where that's coming from and, and hold, yeah, that, that space for them to be themselves. Yeah, exactly. And just because someone's doing something that might be unfamiliar to you doesn't mean that it's wrong in any way. So, you know, uh, stimming behaviours, for example, are not wrong. There's a function behind them. The person's not just like intentionally like doing that for no reason. Uh, There's always a reason. As I said, it could be one of emotion regulation. It could be one of like sustaining focus. It could be um, one of I need sensory input right now because I'm not getting much from my environment. And yeah, I guess all around it can just be a calming, soothing act. So yeah, absolutely right, Rowan. And so one of those, I suppose, differences, and again, not to highlight any sense of a deficit, but so executive functioning is something that that comes up and, and maybe a little bit, say, stereotyped and misunderstood in the past. I wonder if you could explain how neurodivergent people maybe have some differences with executive functioning. Yeah, so executive functioning is quite uh, a number of complex skills that our brain um, has the ability to do. And some of those things are our brain's ability to remember new information, keep it in mind and do something with it. So that speaks to working memory. Um, So for example... If I'm meeting someone for the first time and I'm having a conversation with them and they've told me their occupation and then I want to contribute to the conversation and ask them questions about it, but I've completely forgotten what their occupation was, yeah, I I might feel a little bit stuck and then I might sort of lose my train in the conversation. And and we know ADHD is just like differences in working memory. So once again, that ability to hold new information in mind and do something with it. The other component of executive functioning is obviously attention and focus. And we know that there are differences within the ADHD's experience with attention and focus because their brain works at four times the rate of a neurotypical person's brain. So the sheer amount of information that's coming in is at a a higher level than the information that the neurotypical person's receiving. So their executive functioning has to go through this process of trying to filter in and filter out. And and that can be exhausting when there's so much information being presented. The other thing with executive functioning is impulse control, self-regulation. So we know that ADHD is display some differences there with, you know, uh, sort of uh, thinking perhaps before they have that urge and really want to do something and even sort of being flexible or flexible thinking so when you're uh, you know having a conversation with someone that might look like really wanting to change the topic because that original topic is no longer stimulating but you have to be flexible and you you know I guess you have to sort of stay on topic before you can transition to the next thing so I guess executive functioning differences for an autistic person versus an ADHD also look really different. For an autistic person, their differences in executive functioning might come down to their ability to to task shift, so to switch between different tasks and preferring not to do that unless they're in control over that switch. So a lot of my autistic clients love routine structure and systems, especially ones that they're in control over. So when that abruptly changes, it can really throw out their executive functioning. So 
Executive functioning is involved in so many different things. Like you think about preparing a meal, for example, you know, you have a recipe in front of you, you have to read the recipe, you have to remember it and do something with that information. So that's tapping into working memory. Then you have to initiate the steps. That's tapping into task initiation, another part of executive functioning. Then you have to be like, pay attention to what you're doing because you don't want to burn anything or accidentally hurt yourself. And then time awareness is another part of executive functioning. So you have to be aware of like how long things need to cook for and yeah, like not get distracted by other things. So I know some of my ADHD clients would say, oh my God, preparing a meal is like doing a massive assignment. It's so exhausting um, just because of those differences in the way that those sets of skills, I I guess, operate. Um, Once again, not deficits, just differences. And it's like you have one manager that's coordinating all those skills. And for the ADHD or an autistic person, that one manager just gets burnt out a lot more quickly because juggling all those glass balls with one manager can become yeah difficult at times so it's almost like being an air traffic controller at an airport and you've got planes landing and taking off simultaneously and you have to there's like one person as the traffic controller you have to coordinate all of that which planes land would which planes take off at what times. And if there's like a disruption, you have to think flexibly and on your feet. You have to pay attention to like all hundred planes. So yeah, it can be, it can be a lot. So one thing I talk about with my neurodivergent clients is how do you replenish your energy at the end of a day? Like how do you get some spoons of energy back? Because I appreciate that At the beginning of the day, you may have had 10 spoons and at the end of the day, you might have one or none. And for a neurotypical person, they might start their day with 20 spoons of energy and at the end of the day still have five and can still go out and catch up with friends after work and still have energy to prepare a meal. So thinking about some of those executive functioning differences in the form of like energy in versus energy out is is an important thing to consider. And it strikes me that, say, looking, going back to this idea of the social model in terms of how can we make things easier for neurodivergent people, that looking at this aspect of, say, executive functioning and maybe working out some systems that can help them in a particular way, like even as you were describing, for example, a recipe, like it strikes me that in some ways a recipe is kind of written for a neurotypical person in terms Mm. of, you know, there's a a big long list of things you got to get and then a big long list of steps. And as you say, while you're doing it, you've almost got to think about multiple things. But it strikes me that, you know, out there somewhere, there probably is maybe a better way of doing it for people with neurodivergence and I suppose this is the point in terms of I guess we just have to look at ways of how can we accommodate people who maybe have slight differences with their executive functioning in a way and it's interesting because I even think about things like say chat GPT and like AI and all this sort of stuff like I think in some ways we're experiencing a bit of a shift Mm. kind of you know even in terms of neurotypical people in our collective executive functioning in a way Mm. where more and more relying on different technologies and you know, even systems for ourselves, like, you know, if you to go to my desk at home, Bianca, it's just got, you know, <laughs> little sticky notes everywhere. And, you know, that yeah. works for me. 
sort yeah. of thing. But at the same time, yeah. that wouldn't necessarily be the best system for someone else. And I suppose yeah. it's just looking at it in terms of, well, what's maybe a system or a way of doing something that is going to allow someone to, I suppose, mm. exhibit their strengths in a way. Because all we're really saying is that this person's strengths are maybe in a different area to their executive functioning. It's not as if they can't cook a meal. They don't have that ability. It just means mm. that maybe the way that cooking a meal has been set up and thought of in mm -hmm. the past, maybe doesn't get the most out of someone who is neurodivergent. Yeah, absolutely. And I just want to also make clear that no one has perfect executive functioning, regardless of whether you're neurotypical or neuro... I can speak to that yeah, very... same. <laughs> I think I told you a story yesterday about how I was heating up my coffee in the microwave and looking in the fridge to figure out what I wanted to eat. And then I was also listening to a voice message from a friend, forgot about the coffee, heard something explode and the coffee went everywhere. <laughs> and yeah, I had to chuck it out. So I was pretty upset about that. But yeah, so uh, no one has perfect executive functioning but absolutely I use this sort of term of like outsourcing your executive functioning so if you're an ADHD uh, you know it might be um yeah like post-it notes reminders it could be body doubling so if you have to do a task and you know that you're likely not going to do it for whatever reason or, or you just have that paralysis you want to do it but you just can't because of those executive functioning differences um maybe do a task next to someone else and that person doesn't have to be doing the same thing as you but just it's almost like that other person is is supporting you and modeling like we've got this it's like we you know we're a team now um but it could also be for the ADHD, uh, doing something that's going to give you a quick dopamine um, kick first. We know that the ADHD brain craves dopamine, hence why it's easy to do things that you love because you get so much dopamine. So that feel good neurotransmitter bursting in your brain. So it could be doing that preferred thing. I appreciate that there would have to be containment around that so it doesn't lead into a hyperfixation. Um, and six hours ago and you're like, oh shit, I haven't done that thing. But, you know, working off that momentum of dopamine because dopamine then translates into motivation. So that might give you some motivation to do that non-preferred task. Or, you know, if if you're in a relationship and you hate, um, I don't know, you hate mopping your house or something or doing the dishes like seeing if your partner would you know do you a solid and maybe do that and you could do something that they don't like so sort of swapping but um yeah there are all sorts of accommodations that can be applied in the home in the work setting and in at school as well to support like yeah learning so yeah they're just a few but once again you have to speak to your neurodivergent uh, community about what works best for them because it's not necessarily a one-size-fits-all approach so yeah and I think that's such a good point in terms of say like swapping because mm. like that's one of the things that we want to get across like mentioned it a little bit but in terms of like we all have strengths and some people's strength is in executive functioning others might be in focusing on a task for a very long time others might be in a whole range of different things so I guess it's just finding what that kind of balance of of things is between people and, and being able to make the most of someone's strengths in one area while maybe accommodating for a difference in another but Bianca, if you look at some of the misconceptions now around neurodivergence, because I mm. think they're, they're very plentiful from what mm. we've spoken about a little bit off air too. Mm. But, 
you mentioned gender differences at the start and like mm. this is a, I think a fascinating area that we're getting into in psychology yeah. and like, I again can think of someone uh, recently who you know I think they were basically in their in their 40s a female and and was diagnosed with ADHD and basically for them it just cleared up so many things mm. about the way that they've thought about things and about their life. And I know since receiving that diagnosis, it's become so much easier for them. Mm. But that's also, I suppose, partly because maybe we maybe thought about these things in much more of a male-dominated context. And I know, as we might talk about in a moment, a lot of the stereotypes that exist Mm. for neurodivergence are calibrated a little bit more towards males. So... I suppose, can you just speak to those maybe gender differences, particularly in terms of maybe what we've learned a little bit more about in recent years? Yeah, absolutely. So AFAB populations have this wonderful ability, probably more than their male counterparts. And to what, What's AFAB? Oh, just yep, very sorry, assigned female at birth. Okay, yes, yeah, yeah. <laughs> have this wonderful ability to mask and to pick up on social cues from peers and mimic that. So, you know, I guess if you look at the DSM criteria for autistic, it's, you know, there's, I guess, a criteria that talks a little bit about like social deficits or, you know, the bad days in presentation and because of that ability for females to mask those recognised differences in in their social communication isn't picked up on but girls can also be more motivated by societal expectations to uphold this sort of image of like the good girl who you know is very well behaved and so when you think of like stereotypical classic ADHD sort of like that naughty boy who's like running around everywhere and you know climbing on things and whatnot and a lot of the questionnaires are actually still there are questions that actually say that do you climb on things or trees or furniture and a lot of the girls I'm not saying older girls but in my experience they were like no I don't do that but I have this internal hyperactivity of a racing mind and I can't sleep at night or I can sit still but man like I'm feeling restless and I'm you know fidgeting or stimming or tapping my leg and the other thing is girls can be really perfectionistic as well and so you know I think think in part there's this sort of association with neurodivergence and and like failing school and that's just so not true of everyone's you know neurodivergent profile like I've worked with girls that uh, are brilliant some are gifted um, very perfectionistic and have achieved but often get to a certain point in their academia or uh, working experience where the, the demand just intensifies and some of those executive functioning differences really come to the forefront and they they then might really, really struggle. So uh, you can be gifted and be sort of autistic or an ADHDer. And the other, I guess, compensatory behaviours I often see in neurodivergent women is not just that need for perfectionism but also people pleasing and you know working really hard because of perhaps maybe some recognized differences and and not wanting those differences to I guess be shown so you know if you see a girl in the class who is not disruptive 
to anyone else or isn't jumping on furniture but is staring at the window and is doing that for quite a while Mm, I don't know like I'm not saying everyone would have ADHD then but yeah I guess take that seriously especially if it's a thing that happens often because they might be you know zoning out or, or, or dissociating because of the sheer amount of information that's being thrown at them in the classroom and once again their executive functioning is like oh my god like this is too much I need a break I'm just gonna you know or my brain's gonna force a break for me so yeah I think in some the ADHD experience or you know even autistic experience for females can be one that's probably a little bit more internal than external and that's why it perhaps isn't picked up on and due to some of those uh, societal expectations of women masking can come into play hence why it's also not picked up on but my experience has also been you know when I have a client who I've been working with for a while and say they present to me with anxiety and the the anxiety or the the lower mood doesn't really lift and then you know, it can change into different types of anxiety or phobias. And, you know, I guess CBT isn't working. So cognitive behavioral therapy, I always sort of wonder, "Mm, what's going on here? Is there a catalyst? And are these just sort of secondary experiences with anxiety and, and depression? So it's always important to like roll in or roll out neurodivergence. And sometimes those um, symptoms at face value might actually be secondary to something else that is, yeah, is going on. One of my clients used this analogy of, so they have ADHD of like being a swan. So, you know, they look so graceful on top of water because of all their masking, but underneath they're you know they're paddling so quickly and so fast and it looks a little bit chaotic but um yeah really goes to showcase that on the on the surface things look a certain way but internally they could look quite different and I think uh, the other thing with females is my experience has been girls have this ability to come up with their own accommodations whether it's reminders post-it notes or like spending hours and hours on something And so, you know, it's sort of like, okay, you know, you can do those things, but what did it cost you? You know, did it mean that you had to sleep for 18 hours after that or limit social contact? So I think that's a really important question. Great. Like, absolutely. You you can do all these things, but yeah, what was, what was the cost of that? So I guess neurodivergence can present quite differently in in females compared to males and it's just something to be mindful of because I've had female clients say to me oh um you know when I've questioned this with other professionals or teachers they've said yeah but you're you're not disruptive to the class or you have friends so you can't be autistic but you're smart and you don't fail so you can't have ADHD so those comments can be extremely invalidating to the point where you know, I've had clients that have often gaslighted themselves, not intentionally, but really doubted, oh, I don't know, maybe I don't know how my brain works. So yeah, and as you were sort of, as you mentioned, Rowan, before, um, for an ADHD, this is like a wild statistic, but by the age of 10, they've often received 
whether they've been diagnosed or not, 20,000 negative messages or corrective messages about like, oh, you're just lazy. You just need to try more. You're like up with the fairies or uh, you're really distracting. And what that can do to someone's sense of esteem and confidence, you know, you can only imagine. So I think that kind of then transitions into this idea of rejection sensitivity dysphoria, which I think we'll speak to in a moment. Yeah, certainly. And I suppose like what I find so interesting about that, like it speaks to where a lot of this stuff I imagine would have been traditionally picked up. Like I even just think about say some, you know, attitudes and stuff at school and, you know, just about every class, you know, there was always maybe one or two disruptive kids. But it was always the boys sort of thing. And <laughs> so, you know, I, for a very long time, thought, for example, ADHD was only really something that boys can get just because yep. in the context that I'd come across it in, mm. it just the, the, the girls, for whatever reason, didn't show up. Like, like you say, like they mm. had ways of masking it in a way where the teacher was probably a little bit more concerned with what, you know, the fella up the back throwing stuff around the room because he was <laughs> unable to focus on his task. Yeah. That's a little bit more... I suppose, obvious in yep. some ways than, yeah, the person who, who might be finding a way to get by in a different situation, but it doesn't mean they're necessarily getting mm. the most out of themselves. And so it strikes me that in recent times we've learnt so much more about what it maybe looks like in females mm. and what are some of the accommodations that females are able to make, which allows us to then recognise, well, hold on here, mm. it isn't just about, mm. you know, mm. being in class and sort of mucking around and yep. you know, not being able to focus for the length of a class. Like, <laughs> that's one aspect of it, certainly, mm. but there are other aspects of it too. And I think the more that we learn about that, absolutely the better, because that means that we can identify people who might be having to accommodate themselves in particular different ways. And then we can just help them in, in some ways. If we can recognise that, hold mm. on, this is something that you're going through. Mm. Here's some strategies that we can all implement together mm. to make it easier for you in the long run. Yeah, talking a little bit about strategies, I think something that's really important to recognise is that we, like if, you know, being a clinician when working with neurodivergent clients, it's asking them what their values are, what their hopes are for therapy, as opposed to like, I guess those sort of societal expectations around how people should operate, you know, like you, you got to catch up with friends like all the time or you got to be in busy places or so, yeah, really asking your neurodivergent uh, population, hey, what's important to you? What do you value? And working with that because some of my neurodivergent clients, you know, would say to me, hey, I'm really fine with the amount of social stimulation and connection I'm getting. I don't want to change that. And you have to respect that because as I said, before you know a neurodivergent folk experience higher rates of burnout more frequently more intensely than neurotypical people because of those differences and so encouraging encouraging them to like hang out with friends like on the weekly or whatever will probably push them further into burnout so um yeah i think just thinking about and asking uh neurodivergent people what they value and what's important to them is important not just within the therapy space but just um, on an interpersonal level certainly and you mentioned it a little bit before but I'm keen to get a little bit more into this idea of rejection sensitivity dysphoria Mm. because say we spoke about for example some maybe less commonly understood experiences of people with neurodivergence and you mentioned that that this was one that comes up a little bit for you so can you just explain what rejection sensitivity dysphoria is and why neurodivergent people are a little bit more prone to it. 
Yeah, yeah. So I definitely see this a lot of my ADHD clients. And, you know, it's an extreme physical and, and emotional reaction uh, triggered by the perception of being criticized, um, feeling like a failure or potentially, you know, that perception of being rejected and often like my ADHD clients will find it hard to describe it in words but would describe it as like this physical intense physical feeling like you know their body temperature might sort of increase you know or they've just they're just looping and ruminating on that thing that's happened and you know some examples of that are you know in terms of feedback from clients so like I I feel no matter what I do like it's never going to be good enough I people please over and over again to not be targeted or or rejected I struggle with enforcing boundaries because I don't want to upset anyone Um, I'm perfectionistic and perhaps like work really really hard once again to make sure that I don't get any feedback that's going to trigger me so I guess rejection sensitivity dysphoria can look like anxiety can look like low self-esteem can look like perfectionism and you know I guess when you think about the fact that by the age of 10 a lot of ADHDs have experienced such a huge amount of corrective and negative feedback it kind of makes sense why their nervous system is so vulnerable to perceived criticism or feedback and it really really throws them off so I guess that's not a part of the the diagnostic criteria but you know a big proportion of my clients will often once they've understood that it's a thing number one will often say that's probably one of the most challenging parts of their neurodivergence is that sensitivity because it can sometimes impact relationships or behaviors or avoidant tendencies yeah so I guess in terms of like you know intervention or what I suggest to clients there it's you know number one find a way to validate your feelings as this is something that maybe you haven't received much of because of all that negative feedback and there's a real difference between primary and secondary feelings primary feelings is the initial feeling you get from a situation so it could be anger um, the sort of feeling angry sorry feeling sad um, worried and then the secondary emotion or feeling is like what we do in response to that so it could be judge ourselves it could be break something but I think just validating those primary feelings is really important and then I, I use this term from DB, DBT so dialectal behavioral therapy called opposite action try and do anything that's the opposite of how you typically respond a lot of my ADHDs will say oh after the fact I wish you know it's like a coulda shoulda woulda sort of thing so opposite action is really important and emotional energy can often translate into physical energy so turn to movement movement gives you dopamine breaks down cortisol gets rid of adrenaline and you know, another little skill from DBT is the tip skill. So T-I double P. So alter your body temperature, do some intense movement, paired breathing, uh, sorry, paced breathing and some progressive muscle relaxation. If you're feeling really overwhelmed by that RSD, but know that you're not alone um, and it's an actual thing. And yes, it can be linked back to all those negative corrective messages you have likely received in your years of growing up. But also the fact that neurodivergent folk also do have a sen- uh, an extra sensitive nervous system. So be kind to yourself. Don't meet that experience with judgment because that will only create suffering. But yeah, RSD is something that a lot of people don't know about. So it is a, an interesting concept to understand and can really explain a lot for neurodivergent clients.
And I suppose it speaks just to the degree as well that maybe there has been some, I suppose, enforced kind of imposition on, on neurodivergent people from neurotypical people. So, like, for example, I remember, and, and this, I, don't, I hope it doesn't trivialise it in a way, but it maybe speaks to this idea of everyone being in the majority and almost looking for ways to sort of bring others into that group. Like I remember at uni and going back to this idea of, say, different phones. It's like, Mm. you know, we've got an iPhone and an Android phone. Like I remember someone at at uni, for example, have an Android phone and their phone had run out. And all us iPhone users, they'd go, oh, has anyone got an Android charger? And you go, no, of course not. Everyone's got iPhones. Like what are you doing? Like there would be this almost like judgment that comes in literally just through having a different phone and a different charger at that time. Mm. So I suppose it speaks to the way that when people are in the majority, they maybe do feel empowered in a certain way to impose their way of thinking onto someone else. And so if you think if someone's got like a slightly different operating system, if someone just does things in a slightly different way, Mm. but they've been told their whole life, like almost countless times, you know, do this in my way, like come around to, you know, my way of doing Mm. things rather than what feels most natural to you. Mm. Well, well, even just by what we spoke about a Mm. couple of weeks ago with dad with the schemas and that sort of Mm. thing, like some of the schemas can be developed just by being told over and over again that you're doing the wrong thing. And so if the world is set up in a way where it kind of benefits neurotypical people, Mm. well, then uh, of course people with neurodivergence are going to be a little bit more susceptible to Mm. some of those comments here and there just because people don't understand that maybe people do have a slightly different way of going about something Mm -hmm. so I think the other aspect there is is exactly like you're saying maybe give yourself a little bit of permission to Mm. have your own ways of doing things like for example one thing for me now is like for for particular things you know I won't remember an event or something if I don't put it in my phone. And so I, you can even say to people, look, I'm so sorry. I'm just going to have to pull out my phone for a sec because I just need to put it this in my mm. phone now or I'll forget later mm. on. Mm. But that just comes from me sort of, you know, uh, I suppose being allowed to do that in a different way yeah. and almost being allowed to have my different practice, which yeah. is a little bit contrived to have to remember it that way. But at the same time, that helps me remember. Yeah. Whereas I think if someone's been told over and over again for their entire life, no, you've got to do this this way or yeah. you're doing it the wrong way it would be so much harder in some ways to give yourself permission to create these little systems for yourself which might be a little bit different to other people but yeah it would be easy Mm. I think to internalize that and just think oh you know I'm I'm not as Mm. good but from everything that we've spoken about Mm. today it just strikes me that it's Mm. a lot more about maybe finding different ways to do things rather than you know just being told you know you're lesser or you're unable to do this at all. Yeah, absolutely. And just talking a little bit about schemas, yeah, like the over uh, sorry, the perfectionistic overcompensator schema is definitely high in my neurodivergent clients because, you know, of those comments and they really want to do well and um, you know, there's nothing wrong with doing well, but set up an expectation for them that's so high and and probably, you know, doesn't always work with the way their brain sort of goes about things, but it sort of colludes with that need to almost not, you know, for some people not be different, to not stand out, to not be further ostracised or told that they're doing something wrong. But, yeah, absolutely, I agree with you, Rowan. And so just to finish off, Bianca, like if you finish on a bit more of a positive now, like you mentioned it earlier, and I think this is just a fascinating way in some ways to explain some of the differences 
in the ways that maybe neurotypical and neurodivergent people look at the world. And that's through the neurodivergent love languages. And so you might be able to explain a little bit more about this in a minute because I've just realised I can't actually remember what the love languages are. (laughs) That's okay, I forget too. (laughs) The neurotypical ones. But what are the neurodivergent love languages and how do they, I suppose, relate to or in some ways match up with the neurotypical Mm. love languages? Yeah, yeah. So I mentioned well before, so info dumping, so sharing a lot of information about, a high, you know, a special interest or a hyperfixation if it's an ADHD. So, you know, if you have someone that's literally like information dumping on you, that's their way of showing you that they there's a connection there. And number one, they don't feel like they have to mask. They feel safe with you, comfortable with you. And that can look a little bit like words of affirmation. So one of the neurotypical love languages. And then we've got parallel play. So that's sort of like two neurodivergent individuals coexisting together working together but probably working on like two different things um so it's like okay I'm here like playing this game you're here reading that book and that sort of mimics quality time so one of the other neurotypical love languages we have penguin pebbling so hey I found this cool thing like this rock or crystal and you know reminded me of you or I thought of you here have this and that can look a lot like gift giving in the neurotypical love languages then we can have support swapping or body doubling so this idea of you know I know it's hard for you to do this task but I'm going to sit here and do another task so you can model and pick up off my ability to to complete things so we can work as a team or I know that you really hate vacuuming um, so I'm going to do the vacuuming and you can do the dishes because I hate the dishes so that sort of support swapping and that mimics acts of service uh, as the neurotypical love language and then lastly we have you know squeezy hugs or deep pressure input or sensory input which mimics sort of physical touch in the neurotypical love language so yeah I think it's you know a little fun fact but also really important to remember because yeah neurodivergent individuals will show and express and want to receive love and in a different way not a less way a different way and so if you know someone that's neurodivergent and they do any of these things it's probably a really good thing because they number one as I said feel quite safe with you and and there's some sort of authentic connection and they're not feeling like they have to mask who they authentically are. Well, it's so interesting and I suppose it just speaks in some ways to maybe a lack of understanding from neurotypical people towards neurodivergent people because there could be some situations where you think, you know, maybe someone's trying to get out of (laughs) this particular task but actually it's just about sorting out maybe a swap between, say, different things in a different way and so certain things to a neurotypical person might look completely different to how they're intended but I think once you learn, for example, that when someone's info dumping it's a sign of affection, it's a sign of them feeling safe and wanting to be their authentic selves and like this sort of thing, like to a, a neurotypical person that might look very very different in the way that it does to a neurodivergent person so I suppose that just speaks to those ideas Mm. of how it's a a difference rather than a deficit in a way and even like what I guess one of my favorite ones there is penguin pebbling like Mm. it's such a a nice thing as well in terms of it almost (laughs) takes that gift giving idea to the nth degree in some ways it it doesn't just have to be almost a commercialized kind of aspect towards giving (laughs) gifts it can just almost be anything that makes you 
or yeah, feel a, affection or reminded towards someone. So totally. I think that's a, a great way of, I suppose, looking at what some of those differences can be because, yeah, when we look at it there, it, it certainly doesn't strike me as any any sense of deficit in a way and it's just a different way of showing affection and I think we all have different ways of showing affection which is kind of what the love language is about in the first place but it's a a nice way of explaining some of the subtle differences I think Mm. between neurodivergent people and, and neurotypical people but Bianca, thank you for chatting with me about all this today. No it's just been fascinating to look at this as a topic and I'm sure it's one that we'll learn about, you know, mm. even as they do more research and uh, the information gets out there in, in some ways. Like I think a lot of the stereotypes that we still have for neurodivergence are quite outdated in terms of we look at, say, autism and ADHD and, you know, the first thing that comes to mind for me anyway is, is – kind of male dominated yeah. things and I, that, I think that's just a product of of my upbringing and, and maybe lack of understanding until more recent times yeah. but I think learning about this and I'm sure you know there'll, there'll just be more examples that we see even in popular culture and stuff as this does become a little bit more understood. Yeah, absolutely. It's absolutely. I think it's it's a growing area in terms of research that hopefully we've just started up a conversation in people's homes today, you know, acknowledging that we probably only just sort of touched the surface of information. But I think it's a good starting point, especially even understanding those differences between neuro, um, neurotypical and, and neurodivergence. But thanks for having me today, Rowan. No, I think we'll, <laughs> we'll have to do it again, I reckon. We'll have to kick that off for another podcast yeah. and get you back, I reckon, <laughs> Because it's uh it's been really good, Bianca. Thank you so much. Thank you.